Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a senior Hamas official has been killed in Lebanon. And international pressure is piling up for Israel, which will now find itself in international court to defend itself against claims of genocide. Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Harvard's president resigns following her response to students on campus calling for the genocide of Jews. She's the second university president to resign after a heated House hearing. Melina Weiskup reports. Former President Trump doubling down on his claim of presidential immunity. His legal team appealing the main ruling to keep him off the ballot, with perhaps Colorado soon to follow. What's coming next? Iris Tao at the White House. Updates in the Republican primary race. Former President Trump is racking up endorsements in both the House and the Senate. Meanwhile, his Republican challengers are struggling to gain traction in the presidential race. Arlene Richards has the latest. A jet bursts into flames at a Japanese airport when a commercial airliner slams into a military aircraft. Five crew members are dead. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. After continued warnings to Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon, it appears Israeli forces have just struck a Hamas terrorist near Lebanon's capital city. And as international pressure piles up against Israel, Turkey has just detained over 30 people suspected of spying for Israel. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Israeli forces continue to keep the pressure on Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip as Israel itself faces escalating pressure internationally. Recently, Israel has been stepping up its warnings to Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon about it continually shooting rockets into Israeli communities. Israel's defense minister said this about the situation on Tuesday. We are constantly watching the arena and holding a finger on the trigger as far as what is happening in the northern arena. And also on Tuesday, Israeli forces struck a suburb just south of Beirut, killing a Hamas leader near the capital of Lebanon, according to Lebanon state-run media. The United States had a $5 million reward for information leading to this senior Hamas official. The IDF did not confirm or deny the attack. And Israel is not only facing escalating tensions along its borders. Diplomatic relations have gotten more intense between Israel and NATO member Turkey. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan has accused Israel of committing genocide in its war against Hamas terrorists, comparing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to Hitler. Netanyahu said this in response. Erdogan, who commits genocide against the Kurds, who holds a world record for imprisoning journalists who oppose his rule, is the last person who can preach morality to us. Erdogan has previously hosted several Hamas officials. And on Tuesday, just a few days after Netanyahu's comments, Turkish authorities detained 33 people it suspected of spying for Israel. According to Turkish state-run media, the detainees were allegedly planning to harm foreign nationals in Turkey. 
Meanwhile, Israel is also facing international pressure from South Africa, which has also accused Israel of genocide in its war against Hamas terrorists. On Friday, South Africa filed charges against Israel at the International Court of Justice. Israel's government spokesperson responded to the charges on Tuesday. The state of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. How tragic that the rainbow nation that prides itself on fighting racism will be fighting pro bono for anti-Jewish racists. According to the Hamas-run health ministry, approximately 22,000 people have died in the Gaza Strip since the war began. And the IDF says they've killed approximately 8,000 terrorists. Israel will defend its actions at The Hague on January 11th and 12th. That's according to a South African official statement on X. Jason Perry, NTD News. Harvard's president resigned today, making her the second university president to do so following a fiery House hearing last month. She faced backlash over the answers she gave on whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated Harvard's code of conduct. NTD's Melina Weisskup reports. Claudine Gay, Harvard's now ex-president, only served for a tenure of six months. That's the shortest tenure of any Harvard president. Her resignation today comes following a string of tension around her conduct and speech, most notably about the Israel-Hamas war. Remember, Harvard did not initially condemn Hamas's attack on Israel. And last month, the House hearing went viral after the ex-president refused to directly answer a question about whether calls on campus calling for the genocide of Jews would count as bullying and harassment under the school's code of conduct. We'll take you back to that moment. Here's that exchange. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. Can you but not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive. Even after that incident, the university's governing body stood behind her with support, but then later another issue emerged, that is accusations that she's plagiarized some of her scholarly works. In her resignation letter today, Gay wrote that after consultation with members of the corporation, it has become clear that it is in the best interests of Harvard for me to resign. And she's the second university president to resign following that House hearing. The first was UPenn's president, who gave a similar answer to Congresswoman Stefanik's questions about anti-Semitism. In a statement today, Congresswoman Stefanik praised Gay's resignation, saying that her comments were morally bankrupt and saying that her comments actually made history, making that the most viewed congressional testimony in the history of the U.S. Congress. Now, as for Harvard, the chief academic officer will serve as the interim president until the school finds a new one. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Former President Trump is now mounting a formal challenge against the main ruling that seeks to ban him from the state's ballot, with a likely appeal in Colorado on the horizon. That says he again doubles down on his presidential immunity claim in the 2020 election case. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao reports from the North Lawn. 
Former President Trump's team has just filed an appeal to the main decision by its Secretary of State to keep him off the primary ballot in that state, and that appeal is going to the state's Superior Court. Meanwhile, we're also waiting for Trump to file another appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that would also keep him off the ballot, and that appeal is expected to go to the U.S. Supreme Court here in D.C. And while we await that appeal to come, let's not forget that both rulings, both in Maine and in Colorado, actually remain on hold until the appeals end, meaning that former President Trump does remain on the ballots in both states as of now. And here's Colorado's Democratic Secretary of State explaining that today. Watch. We hear it's being reported that Donald Trump is going to, going to file his appeal today. Uh, and until the Supreme Court refuses to review the case or take some type of action, he is back on the ballot in the state of Colorado. And as Trump's legal calendar unfolds in the coming days and weeks, we're going to soon get a sense of how much his legal battles are impacting voters' choice when the Iowa caucus comes in less than two weeks. And meanwhile, in the 2020 election case, in the federal case here, Trump today doubling down the claim that he's immune from prosecution because he was the president when January 6th happened. Today on True Social, he shared what he called a fully verified report on alleged election fraud in the 2020 election, adding that it proves that he's entitled to total immunity because he was taking care of the country and guarding it from rigged elections. Special counsel Jack Smith, however, is urging the appeals court here in D.C. to reject Trump's claim, saying that it's a threat to democracy and a constitutional foundation of this country. And oral arguments in this case are scheduled for next two. Tuesday, January 9th, and no matter how the appeals court here rules, we do expect the question of Trump's presidential immunity to be presented to the U.S. Supreme Court sooner or later. Back to you. America needs a strong leader, according to House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. That's one reason he says he's endorsing former President Trump. This comes as Trump is winning over a growing number of Senate Republicans. Meanwhile, the presidential challengers are struggling to catch up to Trump's overwhelming lead. NTD's Arlene Richards brings us the highlights. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise formally endorses Donald Trump for president Tuesday. Scalise is the latest top Republican elected official to support the former president. In a social media post, he said, I look forward to working with President Trump and the Republican House and Senate to fight for those families who are struggling under the weight of Biden's failed policies. He told Fox News American workers and families are thriving during the Trump administration. And that President Biden has driven our country into chaos with skyrocketing costs and hardworking taxpayers are the ones paying the price. Scalise's announcement comes less than two weeks before the Iowa caucuses kick off the voting process. With Scalise's endorsement, Trump has racked up support from three of the four House GOP leaders. Speaker Mike Johnson and House Republican Conference Chairwoman Elise Stefanik endorsed Trump earlier in the primary season. The former president's even making headway with Senate Republicans. He snagged five Senate endorsements in December alone including freshman Senator Katie Britt and Missouri Republican Josh Hawley. With these recent endorsements, Trump has scored 18 senators and more than 90 House members. The recent endorsements come as Republican candidates struggle to catch up to Trump's significant lead nationally and in Iowa. Do they have any new strategies? Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is still focused on New Hampshire, but she'll have to get past some criticism over her failure to mention slavery when answering a question about the Civil War. 
In addition, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie refuses to bow out of the race. He's making a stand in New Hampshire that complicates Haley's momentum there. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is throwing all of his efforts into the Iowa caucuses. With the polls showing Haley holding a strong second in New Hampshire, DeSantis is determined to show he is the clear second-place candidate in Iowa. But even with the governor's appeals to evangelicals, Trump has a strong foothold in the faith communities, and he remains the clear front-runner in the state of Iowa. Arlene Richards, NTD News. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is facing new charges involving another foreign power. The Justice Department unveiled a superseding indictment against Menendez today. Federal prosecutors allege Menendez received gifts from Qatar as part of a years-long corruption scheme to help the country. This is the second Gulf nation Menendez is accused of helping while in office. The initial indictment filed against the senator last year charged him with acting as a foreign agent for Egypt. Menendez has denied any wrongdoing. And despite calls for his resignation, Menendez says he will not step down from the Senate. In Japan, a deadly and fiery collision when a jet coming in for landing hits another plane as it was preparing for takeoff. Watch this, the moment of impact as the Japanese commercial jet is landing and it hits the Coast Guard jet on the runway. The military aircraft, which was on its way to deliver aid to the earthquake-ravaged region of western Japan, burst into a fireball. Flames lit up the night sky as fire crews worked to put out the burning wreckage. Inside the passenger jet, you'll see smoke filling the cabin. People remarkably remain calm as flight staff and rescue crews prepare to evacuate. Passengers using slides to escape the inferno. Japanese investigators say 17 people on board were hurt. Miraculously, everyone on the plane are alive today, all 376 passengers and 12 crew. I did smell a little bit of smoke inside the plane, but I didn't see passengers panicking. We all got off the plane in about five minutes. I was not that scared. The plane had landed on the ground and I didn't think it would explode. Everyone got off the plane in an orderly way, so I thought we would be okay. I heard an explosion about 10 minutes after we got off the plane. We would have been in trouble if we had left even a little late. I can only say it was a miracle. We could have died if we were late in evacuating. Five Coast Guard crew members aboard the other plane were killed. The captain of that aircraft was able to escape. Staying in Japan, we have an update on the disastrous 7.6 magnitude earthquake. At least 57 people are confirmed dead. Thousands are left without power in the freezing cold. All as rescuers search for survivors among destroyed buildings. Aerial footage in Ishikawa shows the aftermath of a massive fire that broke out after yesterday's quake. Most of the fire has been contained, but flames and white smoke can be seen on Tuesday morning. Thousands of army personnel, firefighters and police officers from across the country have been dispatched to the area. Authorities are still urging residents in the quake zone to stay alert for more major earthquakes. Following the massive quake, more than 90 aftershock quakes have been detected. This eyewitness video captured the moment the quake struck, shaking their vehicle. Officials are warning that more strong shocks could hit in the coming days. 
Coming up, cybersecurity becomes an increasingly important topic as we start 2024. Ariane Pazdar tells us what local and federal authorities are saying after recent cyber attacks on U.S. water infrastructure. Tesla has been surpassed by Chinese automaker BYD, the world's top-selling electric vehicle company in the most recent quarter. And could California's lithium deposits reduce the nation's reliance on imports? One expert says it depends on demand. Details on this and more when we come back. Welcome back. Cybersecurity becomes an increasingly important topic as we start 2024. Several water utilities came under attack last month. The corresponding authority is now commenting on the attack. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. In December, cyber attacks hit several water utilities. Among them was the tiny Aliquippa Water Authority in western Pennsylvania. It supplies water to only around 20,000 people. Federal authorities at the time said Iranian-backed hackers targeted a piece of equipment specifically because it was made in Israel. The chairman of Eliquippa's Water Authority now comments saying if he told me to list 10 things that would go wrong with our Water Authority, this would not be on the list. Indeed, such attacks on seemingly innocent institutions could increase in 2024. Shortly after the December incident, Deputy National Security Advisor Anne Newberger was on Bloomberg talking about the issue. Each and every day, American companies, critical services are facing persistent cyber attacks, and we absolutely need to do more to lock our digital doors to defend against them. Yes, sometimes in periods of crisis, we'll see an increase in a particular type of attack, but every single day, we have too many unlocked doors and open windows in our digital cyberspace. She highlighted ways for people to defend against them. There are basic cybersecurity practices like changing default passwords and limiting administrator account access that could prevent those attacks being successful. Also just last month, a group reportedly linked to Israel launched a cyber attack against gas stations in Iran. The incident disrupted service at around 70% of all gas stations in the country. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Tesla has been surpassed. China's top electric car maker BYD sold more electric vehicles in the final quarter of 2023. And today's Dave Martin has more. China's top electric car maker BYD has outsold Tesla, making it the biggest EV company in the final quarter of 2023. It sold around 525,000 cars, while Tesla sold around 485,000 record quarters for the companies. At the rate that BYD is growing with this huge influx of cash and the huge sales and the growth of the brand line and the product itself, because they do come from building batteries, you will soon see that they are going to start taking over Tesla. Car expert Lauren Fix says BYD performed better for many reasons. Warren Buffett is an investor 
giving them an influx of cash. China dominates the global electric vehicle battery market. In fact, BYD started off as a battery company. This lets them make their own batteries at low cost and sell for low prices. The China Communist Party directly supports BYD partially by giving it tax breaks and incentives. BYD does not sell in the U.S. Fix says if it does, this will totally destroy the U.S. marketplace when it comes to electric vehicles. Consumers aren't going to believe the low prices. I'm not seeing the quality is there. I'm not seeing the warranty is there. But if you need transportation and you have to purchase an electric vehicle for your state regulations or for your personal choice, you're going to find these vehicles coming in at a very low price. Tesla still sold more electric cars over the entirety of 2023, but its lead over BYD is shrinking significantly. In 2022, Tesla sold 400,000 more cars. Last year, in 2023, it sold only 230,000 more. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. A salt lake in California has become a valuable source of lithium, a rare metal used to make batteries. According to one expert, it could help supplement existing supplies as the demand for lithium grows. NTD's Eileen Eng has the story. California Salton Sea has been a treasure trove of all kinds of minerals and elements for years. But recently, it became a white gold mine with one of the largest lithium brine deposits in the world. It definitely could meet California's needs and, and probably most of the North America. Um, the other question is, you know, how long will that, that uh, geothermal brine be able to produce that lithium? The answer is they really don't know, but they're saying at least 100 years. Timothy um, Kelly, president and CEO of the Imperial Valley Economic Development Corporation, says it could pave the way for a potential technology production boom and economic growth as California strives to transition to go electric. Lithium is a main component in making lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. Currently, China is the main processor of lithium deposits. But if California can mine its own and draw in investors, it may rely less on imports. But Kelly said supply cannot keep up with demand, so the value of lithium has gone up. And so this would help to supplement that, but what we're going to see in the future is that price is going to continue to rise because there's going to be more, not only vehicles, but other equipment that's going to be replaced with battery. And that's, um, that could be lawnmowers, it could be uh, other electronic equipment, but also battery storage. And so that's a, the big increase we're seeing also as we move to uh, solar and, and wind generation, then there's been a need for battery storage. And so that, that's where we're seeing a lot of uh, demand here in the Imperial County. Kelly said Imperial County is a huge exporter of renewable energy to the Los Angeles area, Baja, California, and Arizona. What we're doing with the brine today is we separate the liquids from the solids, flash the liquids into steam, and then uh, take the solids, combine it back with the liquids, and put it back in the ground. And so it's a circular system. There are 10 geothermal plants at the Salton Sea and permits for five new plants each cost about $1.5 billion to build. Coming up, the next GOP debate will be on CNN with just two participants. Our guest shares his thoughts on the upcoming media appearances by presidential candidates. And will the border crisis get worse in 2024? A former Border Patrol chief isn't optimistic about the trends. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. 
Israeli forces killed a senior Hamas leader near the capital of Lebanon. Meanwhile, Turkey detained over 30 people it suspected of spying for Israel. Claudine Gay resigned as Harvard president following backlash over her response to anti-Semitism and allegations of plagiarism. She served for just six months, the shortest tenure of any Harvard president. Former President Trump appealed Maine's decision to kick him off the primary ballot. The judge in Maine has to make a decision this month. Federal prosecutors released a superseding indictment against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez over allegedly accepting gifts from Qatar. This is the second Gulf nation Menendez is accused of helping while in office, the first one being Egypt. A Japanese Coast Guard aircraft and a passenger jet collided at a Tokyo airport, creating a massive fire. Five on board the Coast Guard plane were killed, while all passengers on the commercial jet escaped to safety. The death toll from Japan's magnitude 7.6 earthquake climbed to at least 57. Rescuers are searching for survivors and thousands are left without power. We are expecting a round of media appearances by GOP presidential candidates next week. How are they approaching the media and what will future debates be like? Joining us now to discuss the 2024 presidential campaign, we have Roger Simon. He's the director of the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024 on Epic TV and author of the upcoming book, American Refugees. Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Pleased to be here. Now, the 2024 presidential cycle is in full swing, and on January 10th, we have a whole slew of appearances. We have Trump on Fox, DeSantis and Nikki Haley will both be on CNN, and Vivek will be on TimCast. To begin, why those outlets in particular? Well, I think that on the last part, on the CNN debate with DeSantis and Haley and Vivek on TimCast, this all rolls back to Vake's appearance on CNN at a town hall when they cut him off. I've never seen this before ever with a presidential candidate, and I've been doing this more than a year and a half. And I'll tell you this, it was a, an amazing moment because Vivek started talking about January 6th, and they, at CNN, January 6th, Questions are conspiracy theory over and done with. They cannot be asked. And literally, they cut him off. And then the minute, then the minute they cut him off, they had a announcer I wasn't familiar with reminding us uh, in a very close shot that this was a conspiracy theory he was talking about. This wasn't any possible reality. Okay, then... Cut to they decide to have a debate, and who's not invited? Who who did they cut off the numbers? Well, Vivek. Now, now and then, Vivek being a shrewd character on his own, uh, I don't know how it, it was initiated, whether uh, Tim Cast came to him or vice versa. Uh, anyway, uh, at the same time, he is going to have his own thing going on Tim Cast, essentially a, a town hall and it's an interesting thing because what we're watching the breakup of certain kinds of media too at the same time in this it's it, i mean he is the first one i think to show preferences often for what we call alternative media whereas you don't find very much of that although DeSantis has done some alternative media 
Uh, Haley uh, shies away from it. I mean, she's a very much a conformist of the traditional type. So we have a, a very interesting, we're learning from this, uh, and I think we're seeing in a very weird way, and I'm going to say this, we're looking forward to the 2028 in this, because these folks are all probably going to lose to Donald Trump. But they have to have in their heads, all of them, 2028. Now, in terms of Florida Governor DeSantis on CNN, what are the potential benefits and challenges of appearing on a network of a potential different ideology? An interesting question again, because, uh, you know, first of all, CNN is desperate for viewers. They've, they've had a big drop in the last year or two that everyone knows about. So from their point of view, I can see why they do it. There's no, there's no debate to be held within the, within the Democratic Party because there's nothing one to run. So they're stuck with that. And, and also, I think that Haley and DeSantis are glad to have Vivek out of their hair because he's more dramatic on these uh, you know, debates than they are. And although they may be polling better than he is, I don't think they like him there. So in, in, in the, it's a kind of um, confluence of interest between CNN and those two candidates. Now, speaking of Nikki Haley, she is actually challenging Trump. She is saying, with only three candidates qualifying for the CNN debate, it's time for Donald Trump to show up. As the debate stage continues to shrink, it's getting harder for Donald Trump to hide. Do you think Trump will actually debate? No. <laughs> I don't think, and I, I haven't run into anybody who thinks that. Now, I mean, uh, you know, I claim to be a pundit, blah, blah, blah. But that you ask the man or woman in the street, no one says Trump's going to debate. I mean, who would think it? I mean, they, I think that's uh, a candidate's talking point on the part of Haley trying to uh, put in people's minds that Trump is a chicken. I don't actually think Trump is a chicken because. The last time around, he did pretty well in the debates. Anyway, I, so I don't think he's really afraid of that. But he, I think a why I think he knows that he has nothing to gain. So why would he do it? And if it does come down to another matchup between Trump and Biden, and both of them don't debate, how do you see that playing into the election? Well, that is a very good question. I was thinking about that myself the other day. I think in terms of the election. Uh, the general election, uh, Trump will offer the debate right off. And who knows if Biden will do it? I mean, it's hard to know given his intellectual situation. And I think that Trump will use this as a talking point uh, against Biden. So for that reason, I think that we may see one or two debates between the two of them, but not a lot. There won't be like, you know, the old days of Abraham Lincoln when they went off and debated 48 times in every other street corner. Interesting year ahead indeed. Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 2023 saw many records being broken when it comes to illegal immigration. What's ahead for the immigration crisis and border security in 2024? Joining us now is Rodney Scott, former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol and senior fellow for border security at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Rodney Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me on this new year. 
To begin, what can we expect this year in terms of the border, given what we saw last year, especially in terms of the record amount of illegals crossing over? Is that going to continue? Stop? What can we expect? So minus some dramatic, and I mean dramatic, changes in policy by this administration, it's going to continue to get worse. If you see this last week, they uh, sent uh, Mayorkas and Blinken down to Mexico to try to get Mexico to help secure our border since we won't. And Mexico basically said, until you guys do something, we're not going to help. And the administration still won't do anything. And on that note, what specific challenges are Border Patrol likely to face in this year? So the biggest challenge is that they are completely overwhelmed. I think it's hard for people to understand the sheer numbers of individuals of illegal aliens crossing in and the amount of time it takes to process them. So Border Patrol, they're not allowed to be, they're not able to be out in the field and actually patrol the border and try to identify bigger threats. So the real threat, it's not just the border. People need to understand nothing stays at the border. This is a national security threat because we're allowing the cartels to pick and choose who makes it past Border Patrol because they just overwhelm Border Patrol with the first wave of people that are willing to uh, surrender. To your point, we've heard every state becoming a border state, even here in New York. Now, what specific factors contributed to what we saw last year and are continuing to see this year? So the biggest factor is what we commonly refer to as catch and release. The Biden administration campaigned on an open borders uh, strategy, if you will, or, or mindset, and that's exactly what they did. And they shut down a lot of the detention, and then they didn't. They shut down the Remain in Mexico program. So what that means is people that are being arrested right now that you see on the news all the time by Border Patrol, the vast majority are getting released into the United States with a hearing, a court hearing, years and years down the road. That creates a domino effect where they call home and then the next wave comes and the next wave comes. Until we end catch and release, nothing is going to change. On that note, in terms of enforcement, how are we seeing state and federal agencies working together or how should we see them working together? So we should see them working together in unison to simply enforce the laws that are on the books. But unfortunately, we have a significant divide in this country politically. Uh, and specifically on border security. Uh, so you have states like New York, to be quite where you're at, that really have an identity crisis right now. They're finally realizing the border security is, is national security and has direct implications to New York. You're being overwhelmed with migrants, but yet they refuse to step up and take ownership of the sanctuary city policies they put in place that actually go completely against the U.S. government's immigration law and create this poll. Uh, Texas is trying to enforce the law. The federal government is suing Texas so they can't enforce the law. We're, we really are at a crossroads and something has to give. And I hope it's in favor of law and order and pre preservation of our country and, and our national security. And speaking of politics, how do you see the border and immigration fitting into this year's presidential elections? I believe it should and I hope it does play a very, very significant role. Many of the other issues that we talk about that you hear on mainstream media they're really irrelevant if we don't have a country, if we can't preserve the country we have today and the culture we have today. No society throughout history has ever been able to basically ingest three million new people a year with different cultures, different languages, um, and, and remain the same country they were before. So I'm hoping that people pay attention and realize that this isn't anti anybody or anything. 
it's just common sense. We need good border security. We need to make conscious decisions about who and what enters this country. And the current party in power is not doing that. They're actually undermining that. Hopefully people remember that in November. Rodney Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, Shinyan Performing Arts is drawing compliments from the audience in San Jose, California. Comments like beautiful and heavenly. How the dance company is touching hearts with a message of tolerance. And after a pair of memorable semifinals, the college football title game is set with Michigan facing Washington. Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Welcome back. Audience members call Shenyun Performing Arts a heavenly spectacle. What makes the classical Chinese dance group stand out to the audience in San Jose, California? NTD's David Lam reports. John Hagenbach and his loved ones enjoyed Shenyun Performing Arts while it was in San Jose, California. It was his second time. Well, it's just so beautiful, really. It's uh, heavenly, really. I mean, especially, uh, you know, the men are a little bit more of the, they're beautiful dancers, but more strength, you know? But the women almost seem like angels, you know? They're just coming down from heaven. Uh, I really like the big screen that they have, uh, where it's, I don't know how they do that, but it almost looks like they're, you know, jumping into another world. I would encourage anybody to come see it. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful show, really well done. Um, the talent of the dancers is amazing, and um, the whole integration of the the music with the orchestra, the the digital effects, you know, all of it together is a really unique. It's not something I've seen before. Shen Yun's mission is to bring back traditional Chinese culture. The New York-based dance company also portrays the ongoing persecution of belief happening in China. I was really glad to see that the word is getting out because I think more people need to know about what communism has done to China and to the Chinese people. And when I first heard about Shenyun, I honestly wasn't um, ready to attend it because I thought it was pro-communism. But when I found out that it was actually anti-communism and trying to save the Chinese people, that's when I got very interested in it. I'm very impressed with the... the uh ability of the performers, the, the quality of the music, but also the message is really important to get out there. So I, um, there were some really powerful scenes. Patrons like this father and son were touched by the values depicted in Shen Yun. And your concentration on the golden ages is irresistible, important. And I am so honored and touched by this. And I have the utmost respect for everybody who's involved in promoting this because humanity needs this so much right now. And I think the message here of tolerance is timely, right? And doesn't just apply to China, but applies across the entire world with everything going on. NTD News, California. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss. Let's start with college football. Two really close contests last night. What did you make of the action? I mean, I think that was the most exciting pair of semifinal matches we've ever seen. You know, the Michigan-Alabama game featured a gutsy fourth down call in Michigan's final drive that got them into the end zone and ultimately sent the game to 
to overtime. That almost didn't happen though. I mean, their special teams really cost them. That fumbled punt return was so close being a safety, but then quite a defensive stand in overtime to win. Then in the second game, Washington led the whole way, but nearly lost after that unfortunate injury to running back Dylan Johnson with less than a minute left. Now, not only was he hurt, but since he couldn't get off the field, it had to be an injury timeout. Maybe the most pivotal one ever because it stopped the clock for Texas when they had no other way to. So Texas got the ball back with 50 seconds left instead of 20. Huge difference there. That was followed by another Washington penalty that gave it Texas an extra 15 yards. So the Huskies really had to hold on for dear life, but they did, and now they're in the title game. And now that the title game is set, who do you have winning? Washington, Michigan? I think Michigan is going to do it. They've kind of had this us against the world mentality ever since, you know, what seemed like the rest of the Pac-10 wanted some kind of uh, punishment handed down for those sign-stealing allegations. Now, it doesn't hurt that they have the number one ranked defense in both terms of total yards and points allowed. Now, I hate picking against Washington because they've really realized the role of the higher-ranked underdog, which you know sounds like an oxymoron. Now, although they're undefeated, each of their last 10 wins has been by 10 points or less, so teams have been close. Now, that said, the storyline if Michigan wins could be kind of somewhat negative with all those sign-stealing allegations this year. On the other side, a Washington championship in the final year of the Pac-12 would be a nice way for them to go out. Uh, so that would be uh, quite a thing to look for. Now switching over to tennis, Rafael Nadal made his long-awaited return yesterday. What are the expectations for him at the Australian Open later this month? Well, maybe my expectations are that he gets back to the semifinals. I mean, he had a very impressive return, beating former U.S. Open champion Dominic Thiem in straight sets. Now, Nadal missed nearly a year with a hip injury suffered in last year's Australian Open. The expectations really seem to never draw for him. I mean, we almost always see him at his best. Of course, he's had plenty of injuries throughout his career. Somehow, he's always bounced back. I mean, that's how he's got 22 Grand Slam titles, second only to Djokovic. Now, the Australian Open isn't really considered his best event, even though he's won it twice. The real measure, I think, of whether he's back will be at how he fares at the French Open later this spring, where he's absolutely dominated the competition. But that won't be until May, though. Well, now looking at baseball, Tampa Bay All-Star Wander Franco was arrested in the Dominican Republic on Monday. That's reportedly not showing up for a meeting with an investigator. What's his status with the team, though? Well, it seems to be unchanged. I mean, he was placed on baseball's administrative leave all the way back in August. And basically, that takes him off the roster while he's still being paid pending the outcome of the case. There's no timetable on that because his case is being handled by the authorities in the Dominican Republic, and I'm sure it's being watched closely by Major League Baseball. Now, this is all started by some posts on social media channels that alleged an inappropriate relationship with a minor. We have not been able to verify those posts. But as far as his absence on the field is concerned, I mean, it's, it's huge. He's quite a loss. I mean, he's only 22 years old. And he might be the best young player in the game. He's a tremendous defensive shortstop. He's also a tremendous hitter. That's such a rare combination. He was probably going to finish runner-up to Shohei Otani in the MVP voting. So we'll have to wait and see what comes from this investigation. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.